Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W. Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley Jean. This is the Fly the W670 podcast, season one, episode 58. Meet the new Cubs, and we encourage you to listen, download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to our podcast and to follow all of our socials, Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, and Fly the W on Facebook. Of course, we'd love to email with us. Fly the W670 at gmail.com. I'm Dustin Rhodes, executive producer of the Mully and Haw Show on 670 The Score, your radio home for all things Cubs baseball. And uh, as we're right around the corner from Christmas, Crowley, welcome to uh, uh, Happy uh, Wednesday, or it's Thursday now, and uh, also the uh, last day of school for you. So you are officially on uh, Christmas break. Congratulations to you on that. I am a free man, and I got to tell you, Dustin, I am excited. Um, the Cubs did have introductory press conferences for three of their uh, off-season signings, Dansby Swanson, Jamison Tyone, and center fielder Cody Bellinger. And Dustin, it was announced today that uh, they got their catcher, Tucker Barnhart, right? That's who we were thinking. Yeah, and so he's going to pair up with Jan Gomes, two-year two uh, two with the 2024 being a player option. And so that's per John Heyman, Odyssey Insider. So... Pretty cheap, right? Six point five million guaranteed. Could get up to nine and a half million if uh, everything goes right for him. Pending physical, which we we know now with uh, <laughs> Carlos Correa. Pending physical. <laughs> yeah. you, you take that a little bit more serious now, but in all seriousness, Dustin, you know, I, I think everyone knows I was bummed when they got Correa, and the last time you and I spoke and we talked a little bit, I was not super excited. You know, okay, we got Dansby Swanson, you know, kind of the last one standing, but. I got to tell you something. Obviously, with everything that happened with Correa, and I don't know, that's a bizarre story. They said it was something to do with a leg that broke before he ever made it to the majors. Some weird stuff as far as why that fell apart for San Francisco. It now, sounds like they got cold feet on uh, 13 millions and 350 million, million. That's what it sounds like to me. I'll agree 100% because they went back to Scott Boris and said, hey, would you do less years and less money? And Scott Boris is like, I know a guy named Uncle Stevie who has plenty of money, and there he was off to the Mets. But you know, I don't, I don't know how much of that. Is. You know, there, I'm sure there'll be uh, some sort of documentary on what happened with that one day. What but, if I told you? <laughs> I got to tell you, I, I, after I listened to all the press conferences from the three guys that they introduced this week, Swanson, uh, Tyone, and Bellinger, and I got to tell you that especially with Tyone and and uh, Swanson's. I wasn't super excited about the Swanson signing, but after listening to this guy and talking to a couple people about him, I am way more on board than I was the last time we talked. I'm feeling a lot better about this and who he is as a person, uh, what he brings to the team, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, you like I said, I just wish they would have spent some of the money that they saved not getting one of the other three guys and got a better uh, catch back catcher than uh, Tucker Barnhart. But, you know, it is what it is, but I came away very impressed with Dansby as far as his, his leadership, his intensity, and his sincerity, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Crowley. I've got to admit, I admitted this morning, 
on the Mully and Haw show that after that press conference, I've got a little bit of a man crush. As much as it's okay for one man to really dig on another man, I am digging on Dansby Swanson. I know we're going to share some of the audio with our listeners in a second, but you know when you go through this, if you if you're going into this with a kind of a, a mixed feeling on him, like you were Crowley, um, I'm just telling you that when you get done listening to some of the audio we've got selected for you to listen to. It's okay if you don't want to admit it out loud. I'll be that guy. I'll admit it out loud. I have a little bit of a man crush on Dansby Swanson. If he can play three quarters as well as he handled all the media he did over the last 24 hours, the Cubs are going to feel like this is a bargain, Crowley. Not only that, I think it's the intangibles that are going to make a huge difference as far as when I think about stuff that I've heard Correa say in the past and then listening to listening to Dansby, now I, I feel like I owe Jed Hoyer an apology and maybe I'll buy him a beer at CubsCon, but uh, I, 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 would, <laughs> I would say that, you know. He's going to uh, run the other way if he sees you and I, Crowley. Come on. I think at the very least he'll make sure that it's, it's got a cap and not an open bottle. So I think, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But here's, you know, you know, obviously the Cubs have gone through a few years of losing and um you know you talk about trying to bring a winning culture into the clubhouse and, and one thing i do want to say about jed and these signings those three guys when you talk about jameson tyone from the new york yankees when you talk about uh cody bellinger from the dodgers and when you talk about swanson from the braves those are three teams three organizations that just in general are bring a winning culture into the mix and so I don't think that Jed's just getting guys that he thinks are going to be good physical players on the field. They bring an attitude that I think is sorely needed in this team um, and, and, and some good veteran um, leadership. And so here's Dansby Swanson on winning. Winning is, uh, it's, uh, it starts like with the mentality. It starts with the belief that each and every day that you're not showing up wanting to win, you're showing up that you're going to win. It's never an if, it's just a matter of when. And I think that that's, that's kind of like the first start, right? And, and when you start to win, it really starts to build confidence, uh, you know, in, in this organization. It starts to build confidence within your teammates. Winning baseball is really just about playing the game to win. And I know it sounds super cliche, but there are so many times and examples where you can tell, like, oh, this guy, you know, he's doing this for himself or, you know, he was wanting to do this to get the RBI instead of moving the runner or whatever. And there's just so many instances where, there's teaching moments of where, you know, if we're if, if everything that we're doing is, you know, instead of me saying I'm gonna go out and strike out six guys today, it's like no, I'm gonna pitch to win today. Sometimes it's it might be eight strikeouts, nine strikeouts. Some days it might be two. With the mentality of pitching to win, hitting to win, playing defense to win, um, at the end of the day, you just have to have more runs on the board than they do at the end of the game. And when as a team you can collectively say we're looking to do things to win, and that's all that matters. Whether I go 0 for four. Four for four, and if I go four for four and we lose, I'm not a happy camper. If you can ask my wife, yeah, like we don't do losing. It's like not, it's not something we like. Um, so the the important goal is winning. That's like the only stat that matters. And bringing that sort of philosophy is is really really important. It's something important to get all the guys to buy into, which they will. That's that's just who we are at our core, um, and you know who I believe that will be going forward. He wants to fly the W, Crowley. He wants yeah. to fly the W. He's all about winning. Did, but but didn't that get like the goosebumps going a little bit? Absolutely. You got to love that guy. 
I will tell you what, Dustin, there's, there's a famous story about David Ross, right? And we, it just was the anniversary, I think, this last week of when he signed with the Cubs yep. in 2014. He comes out to spring training, and what is he, right? He's a journeyman backup catcher is what he is. And, who, and if you remember in 2015, one of the big stars was Rizzo and the other was Starlin Castro, and they had just got Lester and some other guys. But they're doing a spring training drill, as the story goes. And Castro was lollygagging. And David Ross called his ass out in front of everybody. This is why you guys are the Cubs. This is why you're losing. This is why you got the history you do. And, and literally, like, tore into it, right? He just wasn't going to accept it. And from that moment on, Ross was kind of like, he was, you know, people always say Rizzo the captain. He, Rizzo's not the guy that kind of snapped people and get them in order. You know what I mean? That's what David That's what David Ross brought. And I see a lot of that except as a better player, Swanson, than David Ross ever was on the field. But just that leadership quality of what you expect from a winning organization. And it doesn't matter if you go four for four if you lose. He's absolutely right. Yeah, he, he just says, I mean, if that was the only, and we have more audio to share, if that was the only piece of audio we played from Dansby Swanson, you should have a little man crush on Dansby Swanson right now. Oh, God, we're such meatballs. But um, they asked Dansby Swanson, you know, where where does he need to improve, right? Like, what part of his game does he think, um, you know, has to kind of go to, can he bring maybe up to the next level? And when he talked about that, Dustin, you remember, I, I was kind of concerned on about the offense, right? I was concerned that, you know, was he uh, going to be going up? Was he going to be going down? What, what, what is the real Dansby Swanson? Is it the 2018 Dansby Swanson or the, the 2022 Dansby Swanson? And I think he addressed it really well here in this next clip. Offensively. Um is a thing that has continued to get more and more consistent every year. Uh, and I've continued to grow uh, in experience as a hitter. Um, obviously, the power has has become, you know, a lot more prevalent than most people probably would have thought. Uh, my biggest thing now is just the, a little bit more of the average piece, the, the swing and miss end zone, um, which has led to obviously more strikeouts than I would like. Uh, it's not something that I once uh, i don't like to strike out nobody likes to strike out it's obviously a part of the game but some of that can be a little bit uh you know like like my own fault essentially just with some of the swing and miss in zone uh, so just wanting to get better uh, at that being able to spray the ball around the field a lot more consistently uh, which you know typically leads to better to better results overall um, i think that's probably the biggest thing for me uh, carter and i have already had some discussions about that uh, and i think you know, just I think that's kind of like a spot-on assessment of what's of what's kind of like the next step in becoming, uh, you know, the player I want to be. All right, so he he recognizes that offensively, you know, the, the strikeouts are an issue, and uh, you know that is something that he he he's aware of and he wants to work on. And so, the one thing he did say though, and you brought this up on the last episode, Dan, uh, Dustin, when I was looking at the numbers, is he said, "Hey, look, man, they're getting better every year," you know. It was just, to me, it was a significant jump between 2021 and 20, between before 2021. All of a sudden you saw this big jump. But if he can keep that average, and he brought about that, he brought that up a little bit. If he can still have the pop, but kind of work on that batting average, then he's not a guy that walks a lot. He doesn't have a high on base percentage. So as long as he can work on that and hopefully improve on that, he can take the next step and be even a better player offensively. Yep, and that's exactly what we're hoping for. That's exactly what we want. And he does replace a little bit of the power that they lost when Wilson Contreras went down to uh, St. Louis. 
Now, the next video clip, uh, it screamed Dustin to me. I was like, oh my God, th that's when I knew you were in love, when I heard this next <laughs> clip, all right? He was asked about playing 162 games in a season. There was some pushback, but we, uh, I just think, I mean, this is, in a way, I mean, this is my job, right? Like, you guys show up to work every day, and if you're not there, I'll give you a hard time. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, that's that's the job. The job requires 162 games plus whatever is left in October, and it's important to show up each and every day, ready to play, ready to win. Um, obviously, showing up isn't, you know, it's not just about showing up. It's about showing up the right way and and doing that to win. But I've always prided myself in playing each and every day, and you know, been very blessed you know by the good lord to stay healthy the last three years um have learned a lot about myself and the people i need to surround myself with in order to be able to do that uh, and i just feel like it's another like you said just the kind of another step to wanting to get better and to really uh you know get more and more into my potential and surround myself with the right people so i've learned more and more about myself every year uh, you know you know the covid year played all 60 but 160 of our games in 21 and then all 162 last year so uh, understanding how to do that's important um, I'm sure me and Rossi will get into it in a good way um, about playing and, and not taking days off um, but yeah it's just a, that's like that's the standard you know you show up and play that's that's what we do and uh, you know if we want to win then we have to have our best players out there each and every night Yes, Crowley, I'm in love. Yep, that, that, that's a, that is a hook, line, and sinker. Love a guy that knows that the, uh, the value of work, work ethic. Yes, I, I'm, all, I'm all in on, on that. I, I, will, I will say this, and um, I don't want to see him play all 162 games. I want him to be available for 162 games. I think about 155 would be perfect because I want him to be fresh in October. Did, did you notice, though, Dustin, that, that when he talks about, like, he doesn't talk about 162 games. He talks about 162 games plus. Yes. Like, in his yep. mind, he's already talking postseason, man. That's, oh, that's, yeah. where, that's where his he didn't call, I don't think he. I don't think he only came to Chicago for $177 million. No, and, and, and just by, like, kind of listening the way he talks and, and how much he talks about winning and how important it is and how much he despises losing, you're not going to sign up for a team that you don't think is going to be better. And, and so, you know, think about that. In the last three seasons, obviously the COVID season was goofy, 60, whatever. He's missed three games. <laughs> he hasn't started three games in three seasons, you know what I mean? Which basically like what, what we talked a little bit like two and a third, but that's still unbelievable. And that was one of the boxes that he checked that Carlos Correa didn't check. Because if I right. had a guess, Carlos Correa probably missed 60 games over the last three years. And, and, and so, yeah, just absolutely, you know, he doesn't want the meatloaf lineup. He doesn't want the Sunday getaway day lineup. He wants to be in there with the best players playing. The only thing I would kind of pump the brake on, and this is where a guy like David Ross really comes in handy to be able, I, like I said, he talked, like Dansby jokingly talked about getting into it with Rossi about it, is that you do have to pace yourself because of day games at Wrigley are a little bit more than everywhere else. So, you know, just easy does it and, 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 and kind of be smart about it and then, you know, go from there. Um, obviously the thing that we knew about Dansby going into, um, into the signing is that he was the guy that had the best glove that we talked about and having him and Nico up the middle, uh, was going to be a big deal. And so that that's kind of what this next clip is about. 
Um, to me, you're only as you're only as good as your your four defenders in the middle. So, well, obviously pitching is a big part of it, but center field, shortstop, second base, and catcher. Uh, and I feel like the group that we have is is pretty elite in that category. Belly is obviously a great center fielder. Jan's had a lot of experience, you know, behind the plate. And then uh, Nico and myself just really feel like that as a defensive unit, we can be as solid as anybody. Uh, obviously, it's going to take a little bit of time to get, you know, used to one another in the communication, but. Uh, from everything that I've heard, you know, about Nico, that he's just a winner. The guy wants to win. He's a baseball player. You give him a glove and he's going to go play. And he's obviously really, really good at it. Uh, you know, when you kind of combine that kind of mentality uh, with how, you know, I like to do things, it, us it usually, you know, fits like a glove. And I really, no pun intended, but um, it usually fits really well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, something that I'm really looking forward to in spring training, just getting out there and probably going to suggest to Rossi that he makes our schedules the exact same so we can play, you know, as many games as possible together uh, in spring training. He's got a lot of thoughts. I, I don't you know. I wonder if David Ross listened to that and was kind of grinding his teeth. Like, just remember, I'm the skipper. You're the player. I'll let you know when I want you to get off your feet. I will write the lineups for spring training. Tap the brakes a little bit, Dansby Swanson. But see, I love it because he – so, you, you know, Nico, his whole trajectory has just been bizarre, right? Like, absolutely, he was sitting at home when he got called up when the Cubs, like, burned through a whole bunch of shortstops. God, was that 2018? It was 2018, and Addison Russell got hit in the head, got concussion, and they had to call him up because Addison was the last guy they had. And so I think that this is going to be really good for Nico to have this kind of, like, mentor, Right. This guy, this respected guy next to him that can kind of work with him. And the fact that Dansby wants to work on that communication and get that ironed out, he wants to be, if that's what it's going to be, which we know it is, is Dansby is short and Nico at second, then let us get as many reps as humanly possible so we're ready to hit the ground running at day one. So I agree 100%, and I'm sure Rossi has no problem in getting, because that's this is what this is all about, Dustin. It's the defensive alignment that he talked about. Gomes in catching. Nico and uh, Dansby in short and Bellinger in center and getting that turn, the double play turn, the communication, all that kind of stuff is just absolutely going to be huge. So let's just, let's get it, let's, let's get it going, right? Let's get it on. Now, being a minor league junkie like I am, I got to tell you is that somebody did ask Dansby about the minor leagues, right? And so you're thinking to yourself, okay, you know, uh, what, what does Dansby Swanson know about the Cubs minor leagues? And I think his answer to me was just incredible. Here we go. Uh, that's, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I came from a place that was very heavy into, uh, you know, the development of younger guys and having an influx of younger guys. And I feel like if you want to be good for one year, you sign a lot of free agents. You want to be good for a long time, you learn how to develop uh, and have talent at the minor league level. And that's something that the Cubs have. They have a lot of good depth. They have a lot of players with some star potential. You know, Pete Crow Armstrong is obviously one of them. Uh, Brennan Davis is another. Uh, there's a lot of guys that uh, have potential to be, you know, high-level contributors. And so you start to supplement a big league team with those kinds of guys. You take the pressure off them to perform. Uh, you allow them to just be themselves and to be able to, you know, learn what it means to be a pro. You guide them along the way. You love them a little bit. Um, and, you know, they start to grow and blossom as players. And then, uh, you know, it just it, it really kind of makes for like this organic development and growth as an organization that then makes it even more attractive for, you know, whatever free agents you would want to bring on. Uh, and, and you really start to build 
you know, a team that is capable of winning at a very high level. So a couple things. Awesome that he names dro- name drops Pete Crow Armstrong and Brennan Davis, right? So this guy, this guy's in the paying attention. He's paying, paying attention. attention, right? He's the done his research. That, yep. The thing that he brings up though that's important, and and God, you know how many times I've brought this up a bajillion times. You don't want to just throw Matt Mervis into the fire. That rarely ever works. Even if you remember Kyle Schwarber, you know he came up, you know, 2015 and did really well, and we were all excited about 2016. He had the catastrophic injury, but then 2017, oh, you're leading off. Like it just, I wonder how much that screwed up his development. You know what I mean? Like you can't put the pressure on these young guys. Do not forget that they, that it's not that easy. Most guys are not Mike Trout and come up and absolutely dominate forever, right? It sometimes is a process. And if you don't have to rely on your minor league guys to be the key contributors, if they're just a component, if they can just develop, they will become great players. But if you put too much pressure on them, if you, you make them do something they're not ready to do yet, you can absolutely stunt their development. And that is what I do not want to see happen with any of these guys that are going to be coming up, including Matt Mervis. Yeah, and that's a good point, Crowley, and I agree with you. And that's what's a little bit disappointing is I'm really curious to see who the Cubs are able to get. And the good news is is that Jed was on the score earlier today with Mully and Haw, and he said that they're not done. You know, there's still, the big blocks are in place, but there is still things to be done. He mentioned catcher. They filled that after he was on. First base, he mentioned they're working on it. He also mentioned starting pitching and back of the bullpen. But let's stick with what we're talking about with Matt Mervis. I wish they had gotten in a little earlier and gotten a little bit better of a player to help with Mervis at first base. I'm very interested to see what they do there or if their plan potentially is Patrick Wisdom being over there with Matt Mervis and then some type of a DH platoon thing going on. Right, and, and Patrick Wisdom has shown he's very good at first. Uh, the last clip that we got for everybody is just because we are meatballs and we want to cry a little bit. Um, well, if this one doesn't nail it down, then you don't have a pulse, Cub fans. Come on, here we go. This is this is, this is is the uh, cherry on top, if you will. Like, like if this guy just didn't absolutely make all of Chicago fall in love with him with this one, I don't know what would. Um. So I, I've pretty much mentioned to everyone, like being a Cub means more to me than people would realize. Um, it's no secret that I left my hometown team uh, to be here. And I've kept telling everyone that it's more personal to me. So Mallory and I got married December 10th. The next morning we found out that my grandfather um, was not doing so well, um, that he was in hospice. And so we pretty much left our wedding venue the next morning Uh, drove home and basically had to rush over to the senior living facility where he was at and uh, we were so he ended up uh, passing away on the day after we got married and the one thing that just always stood out was he lived across the yard from my parents and I and my brother and sister and so every day when I would come home from school I would run up to his house, I'd run in and pretty much like demand that he come outside and hit me ground balls, which he would always do. But every time I walked in, he would have a Cubs game on, um, back when it was on WGN. And I can't look at my parents. Um, He would have a Cubs game on and I was always like, Pops, we're in Atlanta, dude. Like, we're Braves fans. and. It was just something he loved baseball so much, and all he ever wanted me to be was doing what I'm doing now. So 
having won a championship in Atlanta for one of his favorite teams, we just felt that the Cubs, which were his second favorite team, that bringing a championship to this city was just what we have felt called to do. So to be able to play for two of my grandfather's two favorite teams um, means literally like the world to me. So thank you, and I'm glad I got through that without crying. Game, set, match. Okay, game, set, match. Okay, I, I mean, I've never been a guy that's wanted to run out and buy a jersey and put another man's name on my back, but I might go to Dick's and look for a T-shirt, a Dansby Swanson T-shirt. If anybody knows where I can get one of those, I want one of those under my tree in the next couple of days. The jersey, we'll get you one. Don't worry, Dustin, but absolutely, WGN, going home and afternoon games. I mean, there's nothing better than that. Nothing better than that. You're listening to the Fly the W podcast. This is season one, episode number 58. We call this one Meet the New Cubs. And we always want to remind you to download our podcast, to review the podcast, and most importantly, subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. In this segment, Crowley's talking to former Cub broadcaster, now Braves broadcaster, Chip Carey, about Dansby Swanson. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast Chip Carey, play-by-play announcer for the Atlanta Braves with Bally Sports South. You may remember him from his time here in the booth with the Chicago Cubs. Chip, thank you for joining me today. How are you today? Great to be with you. I look a little different now. The hair's still on, but the beard's gotten kind of gray. A few more lines around the eyes, but uh, yeah, great to be with you. Great to talk baseball any time of the year, and uh, first and foremost, Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, Thank you, and to you and your family as well. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be a great holiday. Yes, sir. Now, the first time I ever remembered seeing you on the broadcast was when you, your dad, Skip, you're both broadcasting for the Braves and your grandfather, Harry, was, 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 you know, with the Cubs. And you guys did a segment before a Cubs Brave game on May 13th. I think you said, hi, I'm Chip Carey and I'm a baseball announcer. And your dad and your grandpa went the same thing. And uh, I just wondering, what do you remember from that amazing day at Wrigley Field where you became the first three generation family to broadcast a baseball game? Well, the great thing about getting old is it gives you perspective and wisdom, right? In the moment, I don't remember any of it. It went by in, in a huge blur. Uh, I was still in the infancy stages of my baseball broadcasting career, and I was just getting to hang out with my dad and do a game at Wrigley Field. You know, people know my family's history. My dad and grand, uh, my dad and grandfather were both divorced from their spouses, so I didn't know either one of them particularly well growing up. And so for me to get to spend any time with my grandfather was a really special thing. And I didn't understand the magnitude of that until many, many years later. Look, he was an orphan. He grew up in St. Louis, didn't know his parents. And the greatest uh, honor a, a man of that era could have was to have his son follow in his footsteps. And for a guy that grew up without much uh, male authority in his life to see his son, meaning my dad, do what he's doing, and then to see his grandson doing it uh, with the then Orlando Magic and the Braves and then later the Cubs was, I think, the culmination of kind of the American dream. So looking at it through those eyes and through that prism, it's a lot more special now. I have kids of my own. Two of them want to be broadcasters, too, and I hope to stick around long enough in the major leagues, wherever I am, to be able to hand the torch to them and see where they can proudly take it. But obviously that's something our family's very proud of. It's something that probably won't happen anytime again soon. And for that one magical moment, our family as a broadcasting group, as a family per se, was whole. And uh, that's something that I didn't uh, get to close in my time with the Cubs. And 
fortunately for me personally, I was able to close it a bit when I went back to Atlanta and left the Cubs to go work with my dad with the Braves. Yeah, I mean, not only that, you have a half-brother who does Trash Panda games who the, who the Tennessee Smokies knocked out in the postseason this year. And then your your sons both broadcast for the AA Armadillos. So if one of them or both of them make it up, that'd be four generation of carries in the broadcast booth. That's yeah, just got to be unreal. We're tougher to kill off than COVID, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, as I said a moment ago, it really is an American dream type thing, not from our standpoint, which sounds so selfish, but when you think about where Harry came from and what he started, uh, no parents, I mean, orphan, uh, growing up penniless in St. Louis and through the sheer will of his determination, becoming a baseball fan and getting to be the voice of the Cardinals. And then he builds a Hall of Fame career and then he raises a son who, wanted to do what he did and his first son wanted to do what he did and for me my first and second and my third son i have a 14 year old that's interested in broadcasting too to kind of follow in this uh a tradition if you will it's it's really pretty mar- remarkable and we're very proud of that but that said we're no different than a family that owns a plumbing business or a mortuary or is in a law firm it just happens that we get to watch baseball and talk about it on radio or tv and we're very, very grateful for that. It's just what we do. It's the skill set that the good Lord gave us. Look, I can't uh, dig ditches. I can't do calculus. I can barely balance my checkbook. I can say ball two pretty well. And I think my kids can do that too. So that's the talent that we were given. And um, I'm very proud of what I've been able to accomplish. I'm very proud of what my sons are doing. And as I said before, I just hope to hang on long enough with these gray whiskers that they'll be able to take the next step forward and take our family name if they so choose uh, to the next Rome, whatever that's going to be. Yeah. Now you, you, you got your first job. We we're talking 91, 92. You're with the, uh, the Braves with your dad, like you said, and then again through 2005 and eight, how much fun was it sharing a booth with your dad? And what did you learn from your father when it came to the craft of broadcasting? Oh, my dad was my hero. Uh, my parents divorced. I still remember when my dad left and drove away. Uh, my mom explained it to me. He's going away on a very long road trip. Uh, I was five years old. I never forgot that day. Uh, I didn't see him a lot growing up. I would see him when he'd come to St. Louis, where I grew up, with the Braves, and I'd see him a couple of times a year, and that was pretty much it. And to get a chance to reconnect with my dad at that stage in his life, and for me personally, married, with children, to see him be a grandfather, to be able to be his son, and by that I mean in the latter days of my dad's life, he wasn't particularly healthy, but I'd get to go pick up his dry cleaning. I'd get his bags from the lobby of the hotel. I'd go have a drink with him after the game. I would take him to the doctor's visits. All of those things that I missed out on as a kid uh, really humanized my dad. And I think humanized me, too. Uh, we were both sort of mythical creatures in each other's uh, uh, spheres of influence, if you will. He didn't get me and I didn't get him. And to be able to get him at the end of his life for the last four or five years and spend a lot of quality time with him, as hard as it was for me to leave the Cubs, that was the most rewarding thing that I could have done. And uh, I don't regret that for a minute. Uh, you know, my dad, as I said, was the guy that hung the moon for me. And I hope that I'm, be, I'm, I'm doing the same thing for my kids. And I hope that when I'm gone, they'll think of me and all those stupid lessons and things that I pound in their heads that drive them crazy, that they'll remember that that comes from a place of love like it did for my dad and me. So unforgettable great time uh we bonded very quickly as broadcast people but as people and parents and sons it was it was the best yeah now so late in 1997 it's announced that you're going to be joining your grandfather in the booth unfortunately harry passed away in february in 1998 that that had to have been a tough loss because i know you were probably looking forward to spending that time with your grandfather in the booth in chicago 
Yeah, in many ways, Tom Brenneman was Harry's grandson. And I mean that with all due respect. Tommy is a great friend and great broadcaster and did such a great job for so many years. Um, they, the Cubs offered me the radio job years earlier, and I couldn't take it for myriad reasons. Uh, and when the first opportunity for me to come to Chicago came through, again, I couldn't take it for myriad reasons. And my grandfather wasn't very happy. We didn't speak for months. I finally had to call my dad and say, look, get him off my back. I, I, I've got a wife. I've got a kid. I, I can't live in Chicago for X number of dollars. And Harry said, well, you don't understand. Chicago is the greatest city in the world, blah, 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 blah. And my dad finally said, OK, then you pay him the difference. Well, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden he backed off, right? He, he had to understand it from that perspective. Um, but, yes, it was, um, uh, you know, it was... It was hard not taking that job, but it was wonderful eventually being able to come back and knowing that I made that phone call and said, well, it took us five years longer than we thought, but you've got a partner. And he was very excited about that because I think the one thing that my grandfather missed, or, and I call him Harry because in many ways he wasn't grandfatherly with me, uh, was that sense of connection. He wanted to understand what I was about. He was very proud of the fact that I was doing NBA basketball. He was very proud that I was making a name for myself. But I think in his own way, he wanted to kind of close that loop. And for me personally, as a baseball fan and lover of the history and, and lore of the game, there's a great sense of loss. Harry Carey saw some of the first games Jackie Robinson played. Harry Carey saw every at-bat that Stan Musial had in the major leagues. Harry Carey rode the trains and played uh, cards with Leo DeRocher. Uh, Harry Carey saw Bob Gibson pitch. I mean, all of those things that would be such a part of the fabric and fiber of loving our sport and carrying that forward were lost when I didn't get a chance to spend that kind of time with him. And so um, between that and the obviously funny stories that Tom Brenham and Ron Sando had and all the crazy nights out that Harry had, those are all things that I, I really missed and would have treasured to this day. Um, but, you know, the old saying, make plans, God laughs. So the, the plan was that it was up to me to try to carry that torch forward as best as I could with Arnie Harris and Steve Stone. And I'm very proud of, of what I was able to do in a very short period of time up there. Well, I'm speaking of, of Steve Stone and Arnie. I mean, I'm a product of that product, you know, of that broadcast as far sure. as Arnie and Harry and Steve. And so I remember, you know, Steve learning under Harry and I've read Steve's book, Where's Harry? It's a great book. But now all of a sudden where, where Harry kind of taught Steve how to kind of go about doing it, you are now in the broadcast booth with Steve Stone, how did he help you out, especially that first season with the Cubs after your grandfather had passed away? Steve and I had one production meeting, one. And it was on the way to the opening day game in Miami in 1998. He said, I'll rent the car you drive. You're from Florida. Tell me, you know, you'll figure out how to get us to the ballpark. So I'm in the car. I'm driving. He says, so how's this going to work? And I said, well, it's really simple. My job is to talk about the ball in play. Your job is to tell me why, what happened, or what you think is going to happen. And that was pretty much it. I mean, we, we talked about philosophies, and I said, look, Steve, I'm not here to be Harry Carey. I'm never going to be Harry Carey. I'm not the star of the show. This is a we thing. If you're good, I'm going to be good. If I suck, you're going to suck. And it's up to us to find a way to work together to put on a broadcast that's worthy of the C on the hat and something our fans can be proud of. So we do that first game. And look, when you go to a new team, you can't help feeling um, impotent because you don't know the team the way that Steve Stone. Steve Stone has forgotten more about baseball than I ever will. And my job was to say ball to, here's who's up, call the ball in play, try to set him up and get out of the way and let him broadcast. 
because in my belief on television, TV is an analyst-driven game. Play-by-play guy talks, but when the analyst drives the conversation and when the analyst predicts what's going to happen, which, as you know, Steve has the most unbelievable ability to do that, that's when the game's at its best. So we finished the game. I think the Cubs lost. It was a close game, well played. And I say, oh, well, until tomorrow, Chip Carey, Steve Stone, we'll see you tomorrow night. Steve takes off his headsets. And if you know Steve, he's got the driest and just most sarcastic and sardonic sense of humor. (laughs) Takes his headsets and throws them on the desk. And he goes, well, that was just great. And I'm thinking, oh, God, what did I do? You know, I mean, he already hates me. I'm scared to death. I'm trying to follow Harry Carey, blah, blah, blah. I look at with, with these big wide eyes and he leans over and I've never forgotten this. He leans over with his hand out and said, I want to thank you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, for the first time in 17 years, I feel like I'm a partner in the broadcast. And that's the basis of the friendship and partnership that we developed. This is taking nothing away from what he and Harry had together. Harry was the star of the show. It was the Harry Carey show. And Steve was kind of the, uh, accessory. That's why the book was titled, Where's Harry? What's the most often question you've been asked, Steve? Where's Harry? <laughs> For uh, us, it was, it's Steve and Chip. And I was more than content with that. And the trust that we built after that very first game and the fun that we had and the things that he taught me about the business and Chicago and WGN and the Tribune Company were incredibly, in, were incredibly valuable. I'll never forget them. And I still consider Steve one of the best, if not the best analyst in baseball and one of my dearest friends. Yeah, we were very excited here in Chicago. Pat Hughes just uh, is, got awarded the Ford Frick, but also Steve Stone was up for it. And, and like I said, growing up with Steve Stone, I, I'd love to see, you know, Pat was absolutely, to me, the most, uh, you know, deserving candidate. And Steve Stone's right up there. And I'm hoping he's right behind Pat. Me too. Me too. He's, uh, Steve's a, a, a a veritable encyclopedia Britannica of baseball. He knows his stuff. He makes the people around him better. And I think when you look at the craft of analyzing the game from a player's perspective, new age, old age, whatever you want to call it, there aren't many better than he. And I'm sure that his time for Cooperstown will come. Now you picked a fun year to have your first year in Chicago, uh, Chip, you know, May 6, 1998. What do you think? 14,000 in the crowd? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe it was a, it's funny. I know what you're talking, Kerry Wood. Um, the day before Shane Reynolds had sat across the street from my wife and me at the cheesecake factory on Michigan Avenue and watching him pitch. I think he struck out 11 guys in the game. Uh, it was a cold, misty, gray, cold, typical Chicago May day. And I think everybody in the, in the stadium was wondering, okay, Kerry well, Wood rookie. We've heard a lot about this guy. He throws hard. And back in the day, 95 was really hard. Now that's almost pedestrian, almost average. Um, you know, average velocity in the sport now. Uh, but what's he going to do against this, this Astros lineup? I mean, the Killer Bees, BGO Bagwell, Bell, all those really great players. Uh, for Kerry Wood, it was his coming out performance. For me personally, broadcasting the game, I think it was kind of my coming out performance. The two of us are, I think, in, in, in a weird way, are kind of um, uh, linked together because that was the stage for Kerry Wood to announce his presence in Major League Baseball. And for me, I think, Looking back, it was kind of like, wow, this guy's pretty good at what he does. He knows what he's doing. A big moment, the first big moment, really, that we had in 1998. And uh, it was one of Steve's and my best broadcasts because of the historic nature of it. So uh, great day, one I'll never forget. And according to all the people who gauge and value pitching performances, they say it's the most dominating pitching performance in the history of Major League Baseball. 
And for me, it was five weeks into my broadcasting career with the Cubs. As you said, not a bad way to debut. Yeah, and, and, and that ninth inning, you had to – I mean, were you just excited trying to kind of stay calm as far as knowing that that record was on the line? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm – as you can tell, I like to talk. Uh, I have a lot of words that I try to get out. Um, I think those of us who work on TV, that's the biggest problem we have. You don't need to say anything. And uh, when I saw Sandy Martinez put down, you know, slider, and I said, here comes the hook – um, you know, for whatever reason, that call seemed to resonate with people. And thank God he threw a slider and I was right. Um, but, you know, th- yeah, you, you think about those moments and people that sit in our chairs. It's really funny. What matters most is not talking about a second baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates in July. And, yeah, we can get off topic and we can, you know, release the pressure and have a little fun. But when the moments are big, that's when you have to step up and be ready. And more often than not, not saying anything is the best. I think I said 20 strikeouts and I shut up and let the crowd go crazy. Um, yeah, that was that was a magical moment. I, I don't know if we'll ever see another game like that in, in not only Cubs history, Major League history. To have a front seat for that, as I said, five weeks into my career with a new organization in a major market, with a, a last name of mine trying to find my own way and be myself and not live under this shadow of Harry Carey. Yeah, that was a, that was a big moment. And uh, one I'm really, really grateful to have been a very, very, very small part of. Very, very small part here is this, this is a, one of the K's. Yeah, there you go. This is actually one of the legitimate K's. The guy that was out there, Tom Bonjowski was my PE teacher, middle school PE teacher. So he was the one passing out all those case signs and later on putting the paint on the bellies of the guys. I mean, everything about that game was just magical. And, and you know, when we talk about magical things in 98, you also had a front, re- front row seat to the uh, Sosa McGuire home run race to try to catch Rogers Maris' uh, single home run, single season home run record of 61 home runs. I mean, it was just so poetic that McGuire breaks the record in St. Louis, you know, just, you know, the, the Maris family there and everything like that. What do you remember most about that home run race? Oh, uh, just the, the back and forth of it. Big city against St. Louis, you know, obviously the Cubs Cardinal rivalry needs no more fuel. Uh, you had two great, two great sluggers. And look, we, we, we have to be sure to understand that we're looking at those events through a different prism than we were looking at them at the time. Right. We don't know what guys were doing. Obviously, the steroid era was a huge part of that discussion. That said, they still had to hit the ball. And day in, day out, Sammy would hit two on Wednesday afternoon. McGuire would hit one Wednesday night and then Thursday afternoon. It was back and forth. It was truly two heavyweight boxers punching and counterpunching. As a kid who grew up in St. Louis and grew up an enormous Cardinal fan, uh, to be at Bush Stadium the night that McGuire broke the record was unbelievable. Um, you know, I know the history of both franchises. I know how passionate Cardinals fans are and how knowledgeable they are. But for me personally, uh, what made that moment so special was looking two booths to my left. McGuire hits the home run. Remember, there was a big controversy over how much the ball was going to be worth and who's going to catch it. How much are they going to sell it for? You remember all that craziness that was going on? The ball crept over the left field fence. And a groundskeeper picked up the ball, a kid that was in college. And he just said, here, Mark, this is yours. You earned it. He didn't want any money and, and obviously reaped a whole bunch of rewards from that. But you mentioned the Maris family was there. The fireworks are going off. I look to my left, and the guy that was my childhood broadcasting hero, Jack Buck, is standing in the Cardinals radio booth with his red jacket, standing and applauding with tears streaming down his face. 
he grew up in an era where he got to see Babe Ruth. He got to watch Roger Maris play and work for the Cardinals. And knowing that Jack Buck was watching this moment uh, and seeing that firsthand was really, really cool. We, you know, he hits the home run. I think I said he did it about seven times, and then we shut up. And for about 10 minutes, we just let the crowd do what it was going to do. And I think Paul Harvey, another Chicago guy, gave Steve and me and Arnie Harris a whole lot of credit for just letting that moment speak for itself because there was nothing else we could add to it. It was a, a magical thing, great for our sport, great for both franchises. And again, even looking through the events through the prism of the things we know or we think we know now, it was still an unbelievable accomplishment for people who love the sport and love both players. Right. And then, and then, then the incredible thing about 98 is it ends with probably one of the craziest weeks as far as that back and forth race. You had the Mets in it and you had San Francisco in it. The Brant Brown ball. Everyone remembers Santos famous call on that or whale, I guess is better than a call on that. And then all of a sudden, you know, it looks like the Cubs are going to get eliminated. And Napy Perez hits a walk-off homer, forcing a one-game playoff at Wrigley. I mean, that was just – that had to have been insane, everything going on, just the highs and the lows of just that last week alone. Yeah, well, that's what makes it fun, right, is the roller coaster of emotions. And we were doing the game in Houston. The Cubs lost. And we're about to sign off. And Tal Smith, who was the president and GM of the Astros at the Astrodome, starts banging on the glass next to us and says, look at the TV monitor. Napy Perez just hit home run. And I said, there's going to be a one-game playoff at Wrigley Field tomorrow night against the Giants. So, yeah, I mean, um, as you said earlier, you're right. When you go to a new market and you go to a new team, and even if you have the last name or not, you want to have a good team to help ease your transition. And for me, the 98 Cubs, with all the great storylines that took place, with all the great personalities that were on that roster and in that front office, uh, I couldn't think of a better entree for somebody like me to – sort of slide in and try not to mess it up and, and enjoy a 162 game crazy ride, which it was. You're listening to the fly, the W six seventy podcast, meet the new Cubs at season one. It's episode 58. Don't forget to listen, download, review, subscribe to the fly, the W podcast. And in this segment, Crawley and I are going to talk about what we heard from Corey Bellinger and Jamison Tyon when they met with the media earlier this week. I got, I got to tell you, you know, um, Cody Bellinger, everyone kind of jokes about it, always looks, when you look at him in the dugout, he looks like he started in that movie Dazed and Confused, right? Uh-huh. Looks like he, um, you know, just may like to indulge a little bit, and, and we're not judging that at all. Uh, but he did uh, get on and talk to the media, and, and so it wasn't as fiery up as Dan, Dansby Swanson. But, you know, some questions that I thought were at, um, asked by the beat writers, which, you know, those guys always just do a great job. Love the Cubs beat writers. We've had a lot of them on the show. But, you know, we talk about, you know, the thing about Bellinger is, you know, how much of what happened to him the last couple of years, the fall off from MVP to, you know, really struggling, how many of that has to do with health? And this is what he had to say. I think my favorite thing was uh, that I've learned is, you know, you can't change the past, but you can learn from it. Um, I think that, you know, I, there were definitely injuries involved and, um, you know, your body wasn't moving how, you know, it used to. And, you know, I can go on and on. Um, but, you know, looking forward, where I'm at right now is, uh, you know, I'm feeling really good and, and confident and strong and uh, I'm looking forward to it. 
See, the problem now, Crawley, is when I re-watch that cut and hear that cut, and I've heard it before, I used it on the Mully and Haw pregame show, and now after what you just said, now I'm giggling like I'm back in junior high. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's you know, he, he, obviously there was injuries, and so how much he bounces back, um, that's, that's the million-dollar question, right, especially for Cody and his agent. And so, you know, the question is, is, is that they're talking about now really is, Where's he at health-wise now? I mean, is there still injuries, or is he ready to go? And so, you know, it's, it sounds like he's ready to go, so let's see what he says. I'm really good right now. I've been, not only am I working out, I'm focused on workouts that benefit me, as opposed to just doing workouts, you know, that make people stronger. I'm, I'm doing more body-specific workouts, and, um, you know, overall, I'm feeling really good and really strong. and. Um, you know, allowing my body to, you know, kind of be free and, you know, uh, what makes, makes me good and being able to, you know, tap into that. You know, there's a, there's a famous saying, Dustin, or there's a famous kind of baseballism, Wally Pip, right? Yeah, Wally, don't get Wally Pipped, yeah. Right, Wally Pip injured and who comes in to take, or, you know, takes a day off, who comes in to take his place? The Iron Man, Lou Gehrig, you know what I mean? And he loses his job. And so I wonder how much, you know, with Cody Bellinger, you take a look at how stacked those Dodgers teams were and how much, you know, for him, was it like, I can't get out. You know what I mean? If I leave and take some time off, am I going to get back in? You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much of that was part of the situation. And I wonder how much of it, you know, how truly healthy he is now. You know, he didn't play obviously much lately, he played a lot less. Is he is he fully healed? Is he ready to go? It is going to be, I think, a big part of it. And then another question he was asked was about the mental toll. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, a lot of ball players will talk about this, and I've heard Pat and Ron and 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 Boog and Jim Deshays talk about it, about how just kind of mentally is you're struggling. It's like a it's like you know quicksand. You can't get out of it, and you're now you're starting to get into your head. You're changing your mechanics. And it just gets worse and worse. So when we talk about his mental struggles, here's what he said. It's tough. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but you know, I think at the end of uh, at the end of it all, I'm gonna look back and be appreciative that it happened, and um, gonna be able to learn from it. And you know, I have learned from it, and uh, I think it's gonna be you know better for the longevity of my career. All right, we'll wait and see. Hopefully, like I said, he's he's mentally ready and ready to play. Now, the one thing, Dustin, you were talking a little bit about first base and Matt Mervis. And don't forget, and and, he, and uh, Cody Bellinger was asked about this, that when Cody Bellinger was in the minors, he played primarily first base. Okay? Yep. And so let's say hypothetically, let's say Brennan Davis is, is feeling good and he's crushing in AAA, Right. Let's say um, PCA all of a sudden is still just ripping it and you want to give that kid a chance. There's no saying that you cannot put uh, Cody Bellinger if he's hitting really well in first base as well. And so you, you have these options with, um, with Bellinger. It's not just center. I have played first base in the past. You know, I uh, played there my whole minor league career throughout high school. And uh, obviously my first year or two in pro ball or, or in, in the major leagues. And so I'm very confident over there as well. Um, you know, center field is where, you know, I've been playing most recently. And, you know, I am feeling, you know, I'm very confident out there and uh, my ability to, you know, run balls down and, um, you know, kind of the advancement on my footwork out there. It's a little different than right field where I was in 2019. So 
Um, just been working on my footwork and, um, but you know, I, I'm confident in either position. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I feel really good in center field as well. You know, this is what excites me is that maybe he doesn't get back to his offensive form, but it will just be such a difference. I'm trying to remember when the last true center fielder to play for the Cubs was, and it probably was Albert Almora. Um, but he struggled so bad with the bat that he didn't get a lot of playing time there. But I would say that it's going to be fun to see someone that knows how to take proper routes, that can get the balls. You know, sometimes people like the diving catch, but a lot of times with really great center fielders, they don't have to dive. They already are moving with the ball, and they're right where the ball is at the right time. And so for me, I'm excited to see, so, you know, like I said, it's been a few years since we've had Christopher Morrell is not a center fielder. Ian Happ is not a center fielder. Jason Hayward wasn't a center fielder. The center field is not just a position. You could just throw anybody in there. And, and, you know, that is a huge, important position. And when you're talking about not, you know, trying to save runs and trying to get outs, it's such a key, important role, this defense up the middle, that even if, if Bellinger doesn't revert to MVP form, just what he can do defensively, I think, is going to be worth a couple wins for the Cubs in the long run. I really agree with what you said about center field, Crowley. Spot on, way to go. Um, but I got to follow up with something that you said because it's something that we've talked quite a bit about with Mully and Hawes. We've had Zach filling in for the last couple of days, so he's obviously plugged in on everything going on with the Cubs. And we may have talked about this before, but I think it evolves as the Cubs pick people up and move people around. You just said Christopher Morrell is not a center fielder. What is or who is Christopher Morrell in your eyes on the Cubs team as it sits right now, Thursday before Christmas. Look, if you have to play Chris Morrell for center for a couple games, that's fine. He's a guy that you can put at third, you can put it short, you can put it second. You know, God forbid something happens to any one of those other guys that we've talked about. So he's a great utility piece to have to be able to plug in and he'll play anywhere and everywhere. But again, if you're telling me that, that Morrell's playing 40, 50, 60 games in center, then that's not great. If you're telling me he's playing 10 to 15, you can live with that. All right, got to follow up again then based on what you said. This is also something that got brought up this morning. I never thought about it, but I found it very interesting. Do you think if that's the case and that you don't want him playing in any one position for 50 games, is it better suited for Christopher Morrell to be in the minors to start next season? So he gets somewhere, you, you figure a space, the organization figures a space, and he's getting four to five at-bats four or five days a week. It depends on what Rossi wants to do as far as how they want to use him. He is a, a, a super, you know, we called him the Energizer Bunny. We joked around, high-energy guy, plays anywhere. Right, the we, he goes, he goes, they go almost kind of guy last year. Right. And so, you know, I think I don't know if putting him in the minors is really going to do much for him. I don't think there's much more he'll get out of it. Um, the question is, does he get it consistent at bats? And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with being that kind of utility player. Now, obviously, Ben Zobris is one of the great examples of that. But there's other players that have made careers out of not just sticking at one spot, but being wherever the manager pencils them in. All right, one guy that is also going to be interesting, Crowley, to see where he gets penciled in is Jamison Tyon. Let's uh, let's talk about him. Let's hear what he had to say at his press conference. But uh, I found him uh, very interesting. I hadn't heard much from him in the past, just had seen him pitch. Uh, let's take a listen and get your thoughts on what you thought of what he had to say. Yeah, you know, the first one of the first questions they asked him about was the free agent process, and I thought 
that his answer was interesting, especially considering how we heard some of other, you know, is, you know, the way the Cubs approach free agency. Overall, it's like you're talking to usually a manager or, you know, a couple front office members. So in that term, it's kind of similar, but every team has a little bit different of a pitch. And for the Cubs, it was definitely genuine. They sent me custom videos that no other team sent me, kind of selling me on the Wrigley experience and the history and the city and the fans. Um, that stood out to me. I loved the videos so much. I was watching them like every day there at the beginning for a couple weeks. Um, so that kind of kept it fresh in my mind. Um, the Cubs were actually the only team who went out of their way to meet with me in person. So that went a long way for me. Um, you know, just to be able to sit down and have the conversation face to face was definitely really nice. Um, and like I said, me and Breslow just sat there and talked for over two hours, which, you know, I think we were probably planning on like a 30 minute meeting and we got kind of nerding out on pitching there and we just kept going and going. So, um, that stood out to me, just how easy it felt. You know, everyone I talked to, it just felt easy. It felt right. Um, but, you know, I was impressed with every team for sure. But the Cubs felt felt genuine in that regard, that they reached out early. They reached out often. Um, videos stood out. That was something no other team did. And then just making the effort to, to be there in person was big. So a couple things there. Number one, the video. We, we talked about this on the last podcast, Dustin, when we talked about um, how, how, how they got Lester and closing the deal. And so the, the bringing up of that video and how he would watch it over and over again, that stood out to me and, and, and how much he liked that. All the players, and I didn't, you know, there, when clips got repetitive, I didn't want to keep repeating them, but all the players talked about visiting Wrigley, playing Wrigley, and the atmosphere, the day games, the fans. That's still a huge selling point, you know, to a lot of players. Obviously, that's not the only one. Um, how about this, though? How about meeting with me in person? They made it an effort to go out and meet me in person. For everything I'm reading, the Cubs never met Carlos Correa in person. No. So, I, I mean, I Jed didn't say it, but it sounded like today when he was talking with Mully and Zach that they were really focused in on Swanson. Like, he was almost at the top of their list. Now, he didn't say that he wasn't interested in all four of the guys, but he did not go out of his way to say anything great about Correa. Right. And like I said, to me, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm saying to myself, you know, they went out there. They literally went to see him. And that meant a lot to um, that meant a lot to Tyone. So good pitch on there for the Cubs. Great job getting him up. And, uh, you know, the Cubs did have a little bit of help. And I think this next one's going to make some Cub fans smile a little bit. Yeah, I talked to Rizzo a little bit. I talked to Efros a pretty good amount. Uh, I talked to Trevor Williams, who was only there for half of the season, but, you know, I heard some really great things. I heard, you know, specifically I was asking guys a lot about the just the pitching side and the pitching department. Um, I heard great things about Tommy and Moscos, who used to be with the Yankees. Um, I heard really great things about the, the app that the Cubs have built out, uh, Ivy and all of that. So it seems like a really great fit. And all the feedback I got was like, dude, if you have the opportunity to play there, you, you really have to take it. And, uh, you know, like Efros and Trevor Williams would text me and be like, are you a Cub yet? It's going to be such a great fit and stuff. So after all the hard feelings with Rizzo, he still loves us, Dustin. Yeah, that was, that one caught my attention, Crowley. Um, happy that he had good things to say. I don't know that he still loves 
um, everything about the Cubs. I'm still very interested to find out someday what that one common denominator was that all the guys that left town said there's one common denominator as to why we've all left town. And so it's got to be one of three things. It's either Tom Ricketts, it's either Jed Hoyer, or it's David Ross. But supposedly there was one common denominator why they left. But hey, good for Rizzo for not being a uh, uh, penis and uh, saying good things about Chicago and the Cubs. Yeah, you know, and, and Scott Efros and, you know, you know who, who the Cubs traded to Well, get. again, Efros was here for five and a half minutes, right? right I mean, but, but, definitely different from when you hear it from Rizzo. When you hear it from Rizzo, it's one thing, but but here's the thing, and and I didn't put the clips because the other two guys, Swanson, and um, and Bellinger said the same thing about asking players. And you know who both Swanson and Bellinger brought up as helping sell them to the Cubs? I believe I know for Swanson it was John Lester. Lester was a guy too, but it was Jock Peterson. Ah, I do remember that Bellinger. I remember Bellinger with Jock. And I thought I heard uh, Lester was part of a video, maybe even a conference call with uh, Swanson. Correct. Video with Swanson. But but both Bellinger and uh, Swanson, they played with uh, they played with Jock. Um, obviously, Jock was in Atlanta where he had the giant pearls. And then you had uh, you had <laughs> Jock getting flicked off by David Ross with the double birds. But Jock was only here for half a year. He was the first guy when the, all the trade stuff went down in, in 2021. He was the first one traded. So he was only here for half a season, too. But he j- just people enjoyed. I don't think people understand how much it, like the fans and the experience of Wrigley is kind of a big deal. And, and it was Eric Karros who said years and years ago, every ball player should have the chance to play at Wrigley for at least one season in their career. And I thought that that was fantastic. And there was a lot of recruitment going on from a lot of players. Uh, Jason Hayward was brought up uh, with with uh, Swanson, and, and so these guys are talking about yeah, even even just for half a season, they just loved being here, even if it was for that half season. Everyone knows that you know the game and how you might get flipped and blah blah blah. But I thought that that was great. Um, and the last clip that I wanted to play uh, about Trevor Williams was talking about the kind of teammate he has. And again, this goes back to the bigger picture of what I said about Swanson. And also with Tyone here is you, I, I truly believe Jed is getting ready for these next wave of talent to come up. And with that, making sure you have high character guys in that clubhouse. So listen to what Jameson had to say here. Yeah. So that's something I'm, I'm really excited about coming over to the Cubs too, is that they do have some young guys who are establishing, establishing themselves in the big leagues. Um, I like kind of, just playing the leadership role. I like talking to young guys. I like watching guys throw bullpens. I like helping guys prepare for their starts. I love talking mechanics. I'm always in the weight room nerding out on pitching or lifting or, you know, watching guys throw their plyo balls. Um, That's something I'm really excited about. Maybe take young guys out to dinner, maybe just in spring training, go out of my way to watch guys throw their live VPs and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to make a team better on the field, but there's also a lot of ways off the field to help guys and, you know, that's something I take pride in. I think I probably learned that as I was, unfortunately, a rehab guy there for a while. It's like, you know, I'm making this money to be a big league baseball player. I can't affect the team on the field. What can I do off the field? Can I help guys with their scouting reports? Can I be vocal in, in pitchers' meetings? Um, can I communicate with them in between innings in the dugout? Um, so it's just something as a professional, you kind of learn over time how to interact. And I'm really excited to, to join a team that's got some young guys that I can hopefully – help if they ever need anything or just, you know, be their number one fan and root for them. Um, but 
really excited to just pour into the team and the club. You know, like when we talk about the young pitching, Dustin, and we, we've talked about whether it's Justin Steele or Keegan Thompson or Hayden Wesniski or Ben Brown or, or have, um, you know, just a, a whole slew of other guys that are in that bullpen that are young guys and other guys that are going to start coming up, the DJ Hearses of the world, the Jordan Wicks of the world. A guy like this really, I think, is going to be a huge influence in that clubhouse and in that dugout. And, and talking about going to see bullpens, watching live BPs in, in, in spring training, or talking about, you know, geeking out and, and, and talking about grips with these guys and stuff like that. I think it's a, a great fit. All right. I, Crowley, I really loved everything I heard from all three guys that we uh, introduced uh, the audience to as this is uh, Season 1, Episode 58, Meet the New Cubs. I mean, everybody, uh, somebody you could get excited about. Uh, Swanson I'm most excited about, but the other two guys didn't say anything that I uh, took issue with. Uh, that's a wrap, Crowley. Season 1, Episode 58, Meet the New Cubs is in the books. I hope you have a great uh, holiday with your family. I hope everybody listening has a great holiday time with their family. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Crowley and I will be with you guys right after Christmas unless unless something wild happens between now and then. And if it does, make sure you're following our socials. Fly the W670 on Instagram and Twitter. Fly the W on Facebook. And you can email us at flythew670 at gmail.com. Go Cubs! It's all over.